Let's bow in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the reading of your word and help us to have insight to engage fully with what you're saying to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, you must have heard about muscle memory. It's a good phrase. Um, for example, if you want to be a good golfer, you must practice and practice so your muscles just kind of remember uh, what they're supposed to do and they automatically make it possible to hit the ball correctly time after time. The spiritual life is quite like that as well. Uh, when we're faced with a moral choice, those who've walked with God for many years will more instinctively just know what is right. And it's because of the practice we've had praying and listening to God's word and wrestling with situations to the extent that as we follow Jesus, we, in theory at least, will more naturally do what is right and good and true. Let me illustrate. Just a few days ago, literally two days ago, my eldest son Dan and his wife Lindsay, who live in Canada, um, had their very first child after a 14-year period. Yay, yes. And I'm allowed to give that announcement. So it's all, it's all public, totally public. And it's a girl. Yeah, they're all special. Um, anyway, because they live in Canada, we, we catch up on FaceTime a lot. And... Dan um, started a small arborist business quite a few years ago now, and it's gradually grown, and he's doing really, really well. And we were talking the other day about his motivation to do the very best he can for his customers, to act ethically, to charge reasonably, and to treat his customers well. And I was really impressed hearing about his high ethical standards of business. Now, I know there are many people in the community, uh, people of faith, people of no faith, who want to do the right thing. I get that. But I believe that because Dan is a Christian, over the years he's been shaped by his walk with God and his faith just kind of flows out of him in his way of life and in his business. Today we're looking at the parable of the sheep and the goats, uh, otherwise known as the judgment of the nations from Matthew chapter 25. And it's not about a set of rules. It sounds like that, but it's not. Rather, it's about a style of life, a way of life that flows out of us. Now, this is not actually a parable in the technical sense. For example, the reference to the sheep and the goats uh, is in the form of a simile. Listen carefully. At the end of the age... All the nations will be gathered before the Son of Man and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So this is really more of a grand vision, an epic panorama of the end of the age. And of course, like everything that Jesus said, we need to weigh things up carefully and interpret wisely. Because there's a lot in this that can be slightly misleading if we take a literalistic wooden view. Of course, in the Middle East, uh, sheep and goats look very similar. It's quite hard to tell them apart. There's one thing, though, that makes it obvious. The main difference is that sheep tails point down and goat tails point up. I didn't know that. But goats are not as hardy as sheep. 
And at, the, at night, they have to be brought into the fold for, for protection. So the sheep and the goats mingle during the day, foraging, drinking, roaming, etc. But at the end of the day, they would come back with the shepherd and he would separate the sheep from the goats for that reason. Now, this vision is the very last section of teaching before the passion of Jesus. Just a few days before the cross. And it's preceded by the parable of the faithful and unfaithful servant, the parable of the bridesmaids, and the parable of the talents, which we dealt with just last week. And they're all dealing with the end of the age and how we are to live our lives in the period before Jesus comes again, like now. And throughout Matthew chapters 24 and 25, the big question being posed is, what should we do before Jesus comes again? How should we be occupied? What should be the character of our waiting? Sitting around, idling away the days and the months and the years? Marking time, is that what it's about? What should characterise the in-between time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming? Because there are different kinds of waiting, aren't there? When we're busy with something and there's a deadline, time just seems to rush by. At other times, when we can't sleep and it's three o'clock in the morning, time drags. There are different kinds of waiting. The judgment of the nations is about how we are to wait for Jesus. And it turns out that those who are welcomed into the presence of God and those are those whose lives bear a certain stamp or have a certain quality. Those who are welcomed have lives that are characterised by works of mercy. They're waiting, their waiting has been active and purposeful and fruitful. And Jesus describes six categories of human need. Um, I was hungry and you gave me food, etc., etc. And the needs include food, drink, a welcome, clothing, compassionate care, and a visit. Six categories of need, four that relate to the most basic physical needs that we have as human beings. Food, drink, clothing, and care when we're sick. And two that relate to our need for community and relationship and love. That is the need for a welcome and a visit. Those people who move towards us and others whom we move towards. In other words, on the final day of reckoning, these are the criteria with which people will be judged. And those whose lives more or less conform to the standard of care and mercy are the sheep, and they enter into eternal joy with God. This is how I read this. And those who do not are the goats in their own actions, or more accurately, their lack of compassionate action is the measure of judgment against them. Now, on the surface, this sounds like a works-based code. I think you'll agree. If you do these things, you will go to heaven when you die. If you don't, you go to the other place. However, this is not how we should read this account. It is not intended to be a list of rules to be obeyed. We know that salvation is by grace, God's free gift towards us. This is simply a description of those whose lives have been shaped by the gospel of God's grace. 
It's not a prescription to be followed, sort of after the fact, but rather the end result of lives shaped by Christ. It's not about keeping the works of the law, that would be to go back to works-based righteousness, but rather it's the outcome of faith in God. Did you know that this parable, and indeed the whole of the New Testament, shaped the church and indelibly marked the whole of Western society? German theologian Adolf Harnack said that these words of Jesus referring to I was hungry and you gave me food have shone so brightly and exerted so powerful an influence that one may further describe Christian preaching as the preaching of love and charity. He calls it one of the classic texts of Christianity, which has inspired and challenged generations of Christians. He says it has become a great summary of the gospel and one of the most widely cited biblical passages. You'll recall right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he said, quoting from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And now, at the very end of Jesus' ministry, just days before his own suffering and death, he reiterates God's concern for the poor and the suffering of the world. Those who do not have the necessities of life, those scratching a living at the very margins. Now, this is more profound than many, or probably most of us realise. Jesus' teaching represented a transformation of the usual norms of behaviour in ancient times. Tom Holland, has anyone read his recent book, Dominion? It's a tremendous read. It traces the values base that we take for granted here in the West, traces it back in time and asks, where did that compassionate aspect of Western society, where did that come from? Where did our norms and values come from? And he traces it back to Jesus. Tom Holland himself is not a professing Christian. He's just trying to do good history. Um, this is what he says. The idea that people have a unique status ultimately goes back to Genesis. It goes back to that narrative that God creates man and woman in his own image. And that is something that then passes through into the bloodstream of European culture. And of course, Jesus, in his own teaching, I've stopped the quote now, this is me, took that idea of human dignity and then through the church rolled out this revolution throughout the world. Not perfectly, not consistently, but it has always been part of the DNA of the church. To the extent that we now believe in universal human rights, don't we? I'll be bold, that actually comes from Jesus and the Judeo-Christian ethic. We believe that slavery is wrong. Why? Because people, we believe, people are made in God's image. Slavery was so common, no one questioned it in, in ancient times. We believe that people should not suffer hunger or thirst. We take that as a given. 
But it wasn't always so. We believe that people should not be oppressed. And we have a universal declaration of human rights today. We have an international court of justice in The Hague. And this concern for those who are in need of food, drink, a welcome, clothing, compassionate care and a visit, that goes back to our Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life. In the early church, the seed of this idea that we respond to the needs of the poor was planted by Jesus and it took root. But then, because the second coming of Jesus was delayed, the question arose, what should we do in the meantime? How should we wait? What is the nature of our lives as we follow Jesus and wait for his coming again? And the answer was furnished from this parable and others. We wait for the coming of the Lord with expectation, but also with active participation in God's program toward the world. Jesus reached out to the last, the lost, and the least. We must too do that too. Jesus healed the sick. So must we. Jesus offered practical help. So must we. We are his hands and feet. We are his agents in the world. Through the mystery of God's purposes, he has chosen to limit himself apart from using Christian people in the world. Not always, there are some exceptions. But on the whole, this is how God has chosen to work. We may question it, but I think it's um, a way whereby the agents themselves are shaped in the process of reaching out to others. Here's a practical question. How can we reach out to the suffering in our nation when there appears to be plenty of food and water and clothing in our country? I'm sure you can think of many ways, many answers to that question. Both within our own country, there are people who have those needs, but there are also many people overseas. Here's two examples. The Christmas appeal begins next week, the first Sunday of Advent, and the focus this year uses the very words of Jesus, I was hungry, as the strap line for the whole appeal. The appeal is for those who go to bed and wake up in the morning with an empty stomach. Especially in a COVID-ravaged world where food distribution has been badly disrupted. So give generously, I urge you, to the Christian World Service Appeal. Or find another agency of your choice. It's actually never been easier to find something that fits with your values and to support that agency. Here's a second example much closer to home. Just last week, we were informed that our application for a community resilience grant was successful. Thanks to Olive. I won't embarrass her by going on, but thank you so much, Olive, for being the spur behind uh, getting this grant application in. Olive and I made a, a video of ourselves because it said in the application, um, it's all very, um, you know, inclusive, I suppose. You don't just have to write stuff. Hey, make a, a video of yourself 
selling your idea. So we made a video over in the vicarage, <clears throat> and it took a few takes, but it was okay. And um, the upshot is that we, we got $5,000 grant. What for? Well, next year, Olive Lawson and members of the English Language Group and Outreach Team will be putting on a series of seminars to help unemployed migrants gain skills so they can get a job. How practical is that? That will help feed and clothe their families, as well as build relationships, strengthen community, and help people belong, because there's going to be a meal involved in this training as well. Can you be involved in this and support Olive and her team next year, early next year? It's lovely spending government money on this sort of stuff, isn't it? I began with my son Dan, whose faith flows out of him. This is not about works of the law as a ticket to heaven, as if we can just go through and tick boxes. That's not how it works. It's about being transformed by God's grace so that Mercy and compassion naturally flow out of us. Amen.